Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Section 11 of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899, by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter 11a, Constitutional Machinery, Part 1. The story of Finland's connection with Russia under the five Tsars will already have conveyed some idea of the nature and the working of the Finnish constitution. It becomes necessary, however, at this stage to give something like a complete sketch of the institutions guaranteed to Finland ninety years ago, and confirmed and extended by successive rulers. The greater part of this constitutional machinery is not, properly speaking, a matter of controversy at all, the facts being indisputable, for although Russian writers acting under official inspiration, and even very highly placed personages, have not hesitated to assert that Finland possesses no right that cannot be taken away by the stroke of a pen, the openly official attack does not yet go so far. Exception is of course taken in Finland to the wording of the Manifesto of February 15, 1899, but for present purposes, the first paragraph of that document may be taken as embodying the official Russian version of the relations between the two countries, and there it is stated that Finland possesses by the gracious consent of the Tsar Alexander I of blessed memory and of his august heirs special institutions with respect to interior administration and legislation. Before examining the manifesto further, and seeing whether and how far it violates the Finnish constitution, we must make clear what those special institutions are. The objection that the special institutions of Finland were not at the time expressly stated to include the Swedish fundamental laws of 1772 and 1789 has already been dealt with. There is ample documentary evidence that Alexander I was made aware of the importance of those acts as virtually embodying the constitution which he accepted at Borogor. And in the second place, as none of the Russian critics has been able to suggest any other fundamental acts to which the Tsar could possibly have intended to refer, the objection is not worth further notice. The form of government enacted by the Swedish Diet in 1772 superseded all previous constitutional laws since 1680, and the later acts of 1789 are in the nature of a modification and amendment of the original act. The essential principle of a law-governed state can be traced far back in Scandinavian law. Indeed, the provisions of the second paragraph of the Act of 1772 are, in effect, a repetition of the wording of a 15th century statute, the King's Chapter of the Law of the Land of 1442. There it is laid down that, to the king it belongs to rule his kingdom as the law directs, he and no other. He shall maintain, love, and guard right and truth. 
evil and injustice shall he forbid, avert, and suppress. He shall do no injury to no man, in life or honour, body or goods, who has not been legally presented or condemned. He shall deprive no man, nor permit any man to be deprived of his movable or immovable property, without legal examination and judgment. He shall rule the land according to the king's chapter of the law of the land. These were the ideas ingrained in the very nature of the Scandinavian race from time immemorial, and the mingled Swedish and Finnish people grew up under them. These two fundamental laws, the Regeringsformen and the Forenings Oxakaratsakten, constitute, as has already been explained, no novel or revolutionary code. They really tend to strengthen the royal prerogative, which had suffered under the oligarchic usurpations of the nobles. Alexander II, therefore, quite correctly appealed to these statutes when, in sanctioning the law of the Diet of 1869, he wished to guard intact his royal prerogatives as the Grand Duke of Finland. The provisions of the law of 1772 with regard to legislation are clear and precise. Sections 40 and 41 of the form of government are as follows. The king shall make no new law, nor abolish an old one, without the knowledge and consent of the estates. The estates of the realm shall abolish no old law, nor make a new law, without the king's ye and consent. And section 45 has a special bearing on the present aggression. The king's majesty shall defend and protect the realm, especially against foreign and hostile powers, but he shall not against the law, royal oath, and assurance, impose upon his subjects war levies, new tributes, taxes, and other changes without the knowledge, free will, and assent of the estates of the realm, with the exception only in case of disaster, if the realm were to be attacked by a military force, then the king's majesty has the right to take such steps as are in accord with the security of the realm and the welfare of his subjects. But as soon as the war ceases, the estates must meet, and the new taxes imposed on account of the war shall cease immediately. With regard to laws which are classed as constitutional or fundamental, there is a special provision, section 71, in the law of the Diet of 1869, which must be cited here. A fundamental law can be made, altered, interpreted, or repealed only on the representation of the Emperor and Grand Duke, and with the consent of the estates. The chief fundamental laws which, since the Union, have been passed in Finland and for Finland, are the law of the Diet of 1869, of which a clause has just been cited, and which fixes legislative procedure, 14 paragraphs of the Military Service Law of 1878, which are specially declared therein to be fundamental, certain franchise laws of 1879, and the law of 1886 granting to the Diet the right to initiate legislation. In ordinary matters of civil law, Finland is subject to the common law of Sweden, which may be cited much as the English common law is cited in American states, and, above all, to the general law of 1734, so far as the civil side of that code 
is concerned. In criminal matters, the Finnish Penal Code of 1894 is, of course, decisive. There are also a considerable number of royal and imperial, or rather grand ducal, ordinances, which have the force of law, since by the ancient Swedish constitution, the king had in certain not very clearly defined cases, where no properly enacted law was applicable, the right to issue decrees that had the effect of law. Originally, there was no strict distinction in the way of classification made between the laws passed by the Diet and by the executive government, but it is customary now to use the word law exclusively in the former case and ordinance in the latter. The people, on their part, are required to yield to the sovereign obedience within the law, like true men and subjects, as the old 15th century formula has it, and by the new penal code it is made clear that fealty is due to the Tsar, not only as regards the Grand Duchy of Finland, but also as regards the Empire, and crimes against the safety of Finland or of Russia are declared to be treason. Freedom and citizenship are the right of all not subject to legal condemnation. Villainage was abolished in Sweden, including Finland, in 1335, and, as we've already seen, the effect of the reunion of Viborg with Finland in 1811 was that those who in that province had been serfs under Russian law at once became free citizens in Finland. Formerly, the estates or orders of the population were the possessors of various privileges which have only slowly died out, such as freedom from taxation and the right on the part of the nobles to be tried only by their own order. The throne of Finland is, as expressed in Article 4 of the Russian Fundamental Law, inseparably united to that of Russia. There is naturally no Finnish act of succession, the succession being governed by the family law of the Russian imperial house. The Emperor of Russia becomes, ipso facto, Grand Duke of Finland, but all Grand Dukes on their accession sign the Act of Assurance, guaranteeing the Finnish constitution, whereupon the Finnish officials take the Oath of Allegiance. This Act of Assurance, in fact, takes for Finland the place of the Coronation Oath. The Sovereign has the right to fix the date for the opening or the closing of a Diet, and to appoint the President of each of the four estates. Until 1886, he alone had the right to initiate legislation. Since that date, the estates share that right in the case of ordinary laws, but the Emperor still retains the exclusive right in the case of amendments to the fundamental laws. Laws passed by the Diet are of no effect unless sanctioned by him. Financially, it is obvious that with a Diet meeting only once every three, four, five years, no continuous control in details can be possible. The sovereign, therefore, has the right to fix the annual budget subject to such financial regulations as are drawn up by the Diet. To the sovereign belongs the right of conferring honours, of granting pardons, or of reducing sentences. He represents the interests of Finland in respect to foreign states, and possesses the right of making treaties so far as their provisions do not conflict with the law. It is his right and his duty to provide for the country and for the organisation and arming of the troops for that purpose. This important prerogative is of special importance at a moment when the question of its extent and its limitations is so prominently before the country. The Emperor is directly represented in Finland by the Governor-General, and the government is carried on by a Senate composed of Finnish subjects. 
The correspondence relating to Finland is carried on through the office of the Minister Secretary of State for Finland in St. Petersburg. Formerly there was attached to the Secretariat a committee for Finland, but that body was dissolved early in the present decade. The Senate is a peculiar body without a precise parallel in any other country. Least of all does it resemble the Senate or upper legislative chamber in France or the United States of America, except insofar as those bodies may, quite exceptionally, be called upon to act in a judicial capacity. The Finnish Senate is composed of the heads of the public officers, and in that respect it corresponds to an English ministry, and it also has in its collective capacity certain advisory and executive functions that are difficult to define. Finally, in one of its sections, it acts as the Supreme Court of Appeal. The separation of the judiciary and the executive is supposed to be a fundamental principle of constitutional government in Western lands. All that can be said for the Finnish system is that it has worked efficiently for the best part of a century, and seems to have given complete satisfaction to the country. The Senate differs, essentially, from an English ministry, in that it is in no way responsible to the Diet. Its members are appointed directly by the Tsar from among his Finnish subjects, and their tenure of office is for three years renewable at pleasure. The titular head of the Senate is the Governor-General, but in practice he never attends or takes part in the proceedings, his place being taken by a Vice-President. Matters which come within the scope of the direct decision of the Sovereign are, as a rule, first considered by the Senate before being presented to him. The main division of the Senate is into two departments, the Department of Justice, which is at once a Ministry of Justice and a Supreme Court of Appeal, and the Department of Economy, which has charge of the administrative work of the country. For certain objects, the two departments sit together and form the plenum. Each department consists of ten members, including a vice-president. The Department of Justice, acting as a court of appeal, sits generally in two divisions, the Economy Department, or, as it is more convenient to call it, the Administration, is divided into eight divisions, or expeditions, each presided over by a senator. The most important officer of the Senate is the Procurator, who is appointed by the Emperor and attends all the sittings. He advises the Senate in legal matters, and judicially occupies a position similar to that of the French Procureur General. The administrative department has control over practically all the business of the country that does not relate either to the Department of Justice or to the military command, which latter is exercised by the Governor-General as the direct representative of the Tsar. It guides and supervises the work of the different sections, and in some cases acts as the Court of Appeal from their decisions. The divisions of the administration are the Civil Division, which has charge of public health, poor laws, provincial and commercial government, communal government, police and the collection of statistics, the division which controls the post office, telegraphs, telephones, roads, and posting, public buildings, prison, naturalization, emigration, and the preservation of the text of the laws, the finance division, which prepares the budget, superintends the income and expenditure of the state, controls the state funds and grain stores, the debt, the coinage, and the banks. The control division, which attends to such matters as the land tax system, the levying of taxes, public accounts, financial control, state lands and fisheries. The military division, 
which directs the organisation and armament of the Finnish army, the military budget, cadet schools, etc. The Public Worship and Education Division, which has charge of the affairs of the Lutheran State Church, 98% of the population, as well as those relating to the Greek Orthodox communities and the dissenters. It also regulates the school system, the university, and matters relating to science and art. The Agricultural Division, which is devoted to the advancement of agriculture, agricultural education, drainage, canals and railways. The Commerce and Industry Division, which controls the trade, navigation, pilotage, lighthouses, harbours, minerals, and all trades and industries and commercial shipping and industrial schools. The divisions are generally charged with the oversight of the work of their departments, with the preparation of proposals for reform, and with the execution of those reforms when enacted. The senator, who is at the head of the division, has complete control over it, but in the meetings of the administration as a whole, each senator has an equal vote. The Senate as a whole meets either in general plenum of all its members, or in the lesser plenum consisting of four members from each department. The general plenum considers and prepares proposals for legislation to be submitted to the Emperor for presentation to the Diet, reports to the Emperor on proposals and petitions from the estates, and receives and promulgates laws and proclamations sanctioned by the Emperor. The lesser plenum decides matters relating to the administration of justice that are not specially dealt with by the Department of Justice and considers international questions that arise in connection with the law courts. The Governor-General, as representing the Emperor, is the Chief of the Executive, Chief of the Finnish Army, and President of the Senate. He receives the Emperor's messages and hands them on to the Senate, and in return receives the reports of the Senate and forwards them to the Office of the Minister-Secretary of State for Finland. In cases where he is not in agreement with the Senate, he has the right to record his dissent. He exercises general supervision over the affairs of the Grand Duchy, and reports thereon to the Emperor. He nominates for the Emperor's approval new senators, presidents of courts, and governors of provinces. He has general superintendence over the police, and commands the Russian troops quartered in Finland. The procurator has to see that the laws are observed by public officials, and is thus, in a sense, the legal coadjutor of the Governor-General. He attends all the general sittings of the Senate, and advises on legal matters. Should the Governor-General, or the Senate, in any way transgress the law, it is the duty of the procurator to take objection, and to direct attention to the law transgressed, and, if this should be unavailing, to report on the matter to the Emperor. He instructs the public prosecutors throughout the country and institutes proceedings against officials guilty of illegal acts, either on his own initiative or upon complaints made to him in virtue of his office. He controls the tribunals and the sentences and treatment of prisoners. He reports to each diet at its meeting on the administration of justice and the application of the laws. The Secretary of State for Finland has charge of business requiring the decision of the Emperor. He reports to the Emperor on all matters, military affairs excepted, which are submitted by the Senate. For this purpose, a statement of the case is drawn up in Russian, together with the report of the Senate and the views of the Governor should he differ. The Emperor's decisions are expressed either in a manifesto or a rescript, signed by him and countersigned by the Secretary of State. 
the originals being forwarded to the Governor-General, or by annotations in the margin of the Secretary's report. In this latter case, the Emperor's decision is communicated to the Governor-General in a letter from the Minister-Secretary, who is responsible for the conformity of the dispatch with the expressed wish of the Sovereign. All documents exchanged are to be in both the Swedish and the Russian languages, and the first secretaries are responsible for the conformity of the texts. The minister-secretary is the intermediary for correspondence with the imperial ministers and other high authorities on matters which relate to the empire as well as to the Grand Duchy. There may also be direct communication between the governor-general and the imperial authorities in executive cases. All these details of administration are of importance in view of the changes that have been attempted within the last few months. The position and functions of the Minister-Secretary for Finnish Affairs constitute the keystone of the whole system of administration inaugurated by Alexander I and sanctioned and confirmed by his successors. The Finlanders justly fear that if this office is allowed to be pushed to one side and Finland dealt with by Russian ministers direct, or if the post of secretary be held by a Russian official, there will soon be an end of Finnish autonomy. There are, however, admittedly certain cases in which the imperial ministers are entitled to act directly for the Grand Duchy and not through the office of the Secretary for Finland, cases arising in connection with the departments of foreign affairs and of war. Finland, having no independent foreign relations, is represented in all her dealings with other countries in connection with such matters as tariffs, naturalisation, passports, consulates, etc., by the Russian Minister for Foreign Affairs, and that minister in such cases reports to the Emperor direct, and not through the Finnish Secretary. The Foreign Office, in fact, assumes for the moment the position and duties of the Finnish Secretariat, and corresponds with the Emperor on the one hand, and with the Governor-General, and the Senate on the other. Further, if a proposed treaty with a foreign power contains provisions by which a law of Finland would be altered, that portion of the treaty must be referred to Finland and treated and decided by the competent Finnish authorities. Such treaties, when ratified, are officially communicated to the Senate by the Russian Foreign Office and are published in the collection of the laws of Finland. Russian consulates abroad are required to apply the laws of Finland to cases that arise in which Finnish subjects and Finnish shipping and commercial interests are involved, a matter not without its difficulties when it is realised that such officials are usually equally ignorant of the Finnish language and of the Finnish law. The Russian Minister of War acts in certain cases prescribed by the Military Service Law of 1878, also as Minister of War for Finland, and he has for that purpose attached to his department a Finnish officer with a staff competent to instruct and assist him and to carry on the necessary correspondence. The Russian war minister reports to the emperor on matters relating to the command of the troops, or, in the words of section 119 of the Act of 1878, on such circumstances relating to the Finnish troops as do not come within the scope of the legislation or of the economic administration of the army or as are not otherwise provided for in the law. It will be seen that in his procedure with regard to the military service scheme of the present year, the Russian war minister has entirely disregarded these restrictions in the procedure which has been adopted. 
End of section 11. Section 12 of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899, by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter 11b, Constitutional Machinery, Part 2. The administration of justice is carried on throughout Finland on characteristic Scandinavian lines. In rural districts, the Court of the Hundred, Heradsret, and in the towns, the Town Court, Rodhasret, acts as the Court of First Instance. The country is divided into sixty judicial districts, while each town of sufficient size constitutes a district by itself. Trial by jury, in our modern sense, does not exist, or rather, the jury system has been arrested in its development, and remains at the stage in which the sworn men constitute a part of the tribunal. Each judge who is appointed by the Emperor, on the nomination of the Hofret, or the High Court, has associated with him from seven to twelve assessors who are elected by the communes, but the judge decides on his own responsibility, and the judgment is his, except in cases where the assessors are unanimously opposed to him, when their decision prevails. The tribunal in the towns is composed of the burgomaster and a number of councillors, rodmen. The burgomaster is chosen by the emperor, who appoints one out of the three selected by the council. The rodmen are elected by the town and appointed by the provincial governor. These courts have competence both in civil and in criminal cases, but in cases of grave crime, the decision of the heradsret requires confirmation by the hofret. There are three of these high court districts: Orbo in the southwest. Viborg in the southeast, and Vasa in the north. Each court is composed of a president and a vice president, and from nine to eighteen other members. The president and vice presidents are appointed by the emperor direct, the other members on the nomination of the Department of Justice. These high courts may be invoked in the first instance in certain grave matters affecting church and state, but in general their jurisdiction is purely appellate. The courts generally sit in divisions, consisting of four or five members, and their decision is by a majority of votes. The Supreme Court, as has already been seen, is the Department of Justice of the Senate. Those appointed to this department must be persons of juristic knowledge and judicial experience. These members, like the other senators, are appointed by the Emperor for a period of three years, the appointments being renewable. The officials in all branches of the public service, the Governor-General as representing the Emperor excepted, must be Finnish citizens and must possess sufficient knowledge of both Swedish and Finnish. A recent ordinance of doubtful legality requires a knowledge of Russian also in the case of senators and provincial governors. In the majority of cases, officials hold office during good behaviour and cannot be displaced except for some specified and judicially proved offence. This, however, does not apply in the case of some of the higher confidential officials appointed directly by the Emperor, nor in the case of the ordinary lower police and administrative servants. This legal tenure of office is one of the matters in Finland which is most antipathetic to an autocratic Governor-General who finds himself at every turn confronted by law 
administered by officials whom he cannot get rid of, except for some good reasons assigned. And obedience to the law is not yet an offence, justifying dismissal in Finland. The Finnish Diet is probably the only parliament in which the old division into separately deliberating and separately voting estates or orders still prevails. Certainly it is the only one in which the division is into four estates. In England we still sometimes speak of the three estates of the realm, but the Lord's spiritual have long been merged with the Lord's temporal in one chamber. While the commons are supposed to represent the whole nation, and not any separate class or order, even in Sweden, where the Finnish system originated, it has been extinct for more than a generation. The four estates are the nobility, Riddeskapet och Adelen, the clergy, Prestestondet, the burghers, Borgeresondet, and the peasantry, Bondestondet. The House of Nobles is composed of the heads of all the families duly inscribed on the roll. Of these families, only a few are titled. By a recent calculation, there were on the roll 236 families, among whom there were only seven bearing the title of Count, Grief, and 47 that of Baron, Friherr. The rest are untitled, and consist of a number of families whose heads have been raised to the nobility, Adele, by the sovereign thus constituting a class of untitled hereditary senators, using the word senator in the American sense. Membership, however, is not a personal but a family right. At the opening of each diet the roll is called, and if on the second roll call the head of the house does not answer, one or other of the younger members of the family may answer in order of rank, or the head of a house who is absent may give a proxy to a member of another noble family, who can vote in his name. A claimant who is refused membership by the verifying officials has a right of appeal to the whole order in a plenary sitting. The house of the clergy is by no means confined to the heads of the Lutheran Church. The Archbishop of Orbor and the bishops of Borgo, Cupio and Nislot are members ex officio, and there are also 28 representatives of the clergy elected from the three dioceses, one or two representatives of the university and three to six representatives of the teachers of the lyceums and high schools. The House of Burgess is now composed of the representatives of the towns. Originally representation was confined to members of the trade guilds, but by the law of the Diet in 1869, the franchise was extended to all householders, and ten years later it was still further extended to all urban ratepayers, except nobles, clergy, soldiers, sailors and so forth. The town representatives are elected directly in the proportion of about one member for 6,000 inhabitants. In the peasants' order, on the other hand, the elections are indirect, as is the case in many continental countries. Each commune chooses one or more electors according to the population, and these electors assemble in each district to elect a representative on the diet. The rural franchise is still somewhat restricted, being confined to landowners and the tenants of the crown lands and domain lands. As, however, the vast majority of the peasants own their farms, the number excluded is not great. Every Finnish citizen of 25 years and over, and belonging to a Christian church, is eligible for election in the order to which he belongs. The estates must be summoned to meet in ordinary session, according to the law of the Diet, 
at least once in every five years. The Emperor may also summon a special Diet at any time. The sittings must be held in the capital, unless war or sufficient cause forbids. A session is, nominally, to last not longer than four months, but the sittings may be prolonged or cut short by the Emperor. There is a special election for each Diet, which lasts only for the session, although there may be adjournments before the session is closed. At the end of the session, the mandates of the members expire. The Emperor nominates the President, or Marshal of the Nobles, who also acts as the Speaker of the whole Diet when a joint sitting takes place. The Archbishop, or one of the bishops, presides over the Order of the Clergy, the President of each of the other two orders being nominated by the Crown. These officers are known as Talmen, or Speakers. The order of procedure differs considerably from that of other parliaments. The emperor, or his representative, having opened the session with a speech from the throne, the list of propositions for legislation is laid before the Diet, which then proceeds to deal with them in its own way. There being no ministry to direct proceedings, a president's conference is formed, which arranges, so far as possible, that business of the orders shall correspond, the bills and motions not being considered successively, but simultaneously by all four estates. Consideration in committee comes before public debate, and the first business of the Diet is to appoint the five standing committees, which are composed of representatives in equal number from all the estates. Until the proper committee has reported on the various propositions and motions, these cannot be definitely discussed. The five standing committees are appointed to deal with general legislation, economic and industrial questions the budget, taxation, and the Bank of Finland. The committees may send for any persons or papers necessary for their work. When special questions arise, other committees may be appointed to deal with them, as, during the extraordinary session of 1899, the main work was done by two great committees, the Military Service Committee and the Law Committee. A committee's report, when printed, is submitted to the estates, which then debate and decide. The resolution of one order is immediately communicated to all the other orders by means of an extract from the minutes, or, by way of exception, a deputation from one order may wait on and address another. The conclusions of the different orders are compared and collated by another committee called the Expedition Committee, composed of two members from each order, or, if necessary, a general sitting of all four estates may be summoned on the motion of any one order accepted and supported by another. This general sitting is purely deliberative. It can decide nothing. The members can only vote in the sittings of their respective orders. The Marshal of the Nobles, as has been seen, presides over the general sitting. The proceedings of the House of Nobles are carried on in Swedish. In other houses, Swedish and Finnish are optional. And in the Peasant's House, where Finnish naturally preponderates, official interpreters are appointed to translate speeches into Finnish or Swedish. Absolute agreement of the estates is not necessary for ordinary legislation. The vote of a majority in three orders out of the four being conclusive. But in proposals involving the alteration of a fundamental law, or the imposition of new taxes, or fresh expenditure, the vote of all four estates is required. If the necessary vote in three or in four of the orders respectively is not obtained, the proposition or motion falls to the ground. There are, however, certain cases where, in the interests of the current administration of the country, 
such failure of a measure requiring the assent of all four orders would be so undesirable that a special procedure, already referred to, has been adopted to avert it. The committee whose report is in danger of falling through is strengthened by the addition of 60 fresh members, 15 from each house, and this strengthened committee, as it is called, is empowered to decide the question without debate and without its being referred back to the estates. In this case, a two-thirds majority is necessary to carry out the proposition. The strengthened committee comes into operation in some cases where the assent of only three orders is necessary, and where the opinions of the estates, without being hostile, are divergent, or where the houses are divided two against two on some of the details of a measure which has been accepted in principle. In these cases, the strengthened committee may carry out the proposal by a bare majority. At the close of the session, all the conclusions of the Diet are formally drawn up, signed by the four presidents, and forwarded to the Emperor. There is also a summary of the results of the session's work prepared. This document, called the Recess, is signed by all the members, and is handed to the Emperor, or his representative, on the occasion of the reading of the message dissolving the Diet. Although the old division into estates is still maintained, it is expressly declared in the law of the Diet of 1869 that the members of the different houses represent not the interests or privileges of their order, but those of the Finnish nation. Members duly elected may not decline to serve or to attend the Diet except on the ground of old age or ill health. There is no direct payment of representatives, but the elected members are entitled to claim from the district they represent an allowance to cover their travelling expenses and the expenses of living while attending the sittings of the Diet. A member neglecting his duties may be punished not only by the withholding of this payment, but by a fine. Freedom of speech is guaranteed, and since 1886, each member has the right to bring forward for discussion in proper form, by motion or petition, subjects of public interest. Representatives who are not members of the National Church are not permitted to take part in any proceedings relating to the affairs of that church. The powers of a diet meeting at distant and irregular intervals, and having no responsible ministry to deal with, nor any continued existence between its sessions, are naturally much less complete than those to which we are accustomed in countries where the constitution is more fully developed. But such as they are, they are clear and indisputable. Without the consent of the diet, no law can be made, suspended, altered, or repealed. As regards finance, the assent of the Diet is required for the imposition of any new tax, nor can loans be raised without its authority, but this does not apply to customs duties. It also controls the Bank of Finland and appoints the directors. Of all the powers of the Diet, however, the legislative is the most important, and as this power has been directly infringed by the February Manifesto, it must be fully explained and described. That the legislative power resides jointly in the sovereign and the estates is established, as we have seen, by the form of government of 1772, and is regulated and extended by the law of the Diet of 1869. The vital clauses of these laws, which were, in this respect, only a reassertion of the immemorial Scandinavian law, have already been cited and need not be repeated. They leave no room for doubt or uncertainty as to the control exercised by the estates 
over the making or the altering of laws. It is only necessary to remember that the word law must be understood as being subject to the limitation already explained. Since the 13th century, it was known and well established that the Swedish king had power within limits to issue ordinances which had the force of law. These were really administrative regulations for completing and carrying out the law, or for providing law in cases in which the statute book, properly speaking, was silent. But the king had no power without the assent of the estates to alter the law as expressed in the statute book. When in the 18th century the Diet undertook its great work for the codification and amendment of the antiquated laws of Sweden, all these laws and ordinances, so far as they relate to the civil and criminal law and procedure, were collected and presented as a whole in the Codex of 1734, and on this comparatively complete code coming into force by the authority of the Diet, it was recognised that, so far as civil and criminal law was concerned, King's right to issue ordinances had ceased, the ground being fully occupied by statute law. But the Codex of 1734 did not deal with various matters of economic and administrative law, and in this field the king's privilege continued, and was not affected by the form of government of 1772. Within this limit the rights of the king of Sweden were inherited by the Emperor of Russia, when he became Grand Duke of Finland, and that right he still retains, save in so far as it has been legally limited by the joint action of the Emperor and the Estates in superseding it by statute law, for once statute law steps in, the sovereign's legislative power ceases. The land law and the industrial law of Finland have thus passed from the region of royal ordinances to that of statute, nor is there any usurpation in this, for as no law can pass without the consent of the Emperor, the surrender of power can only be voluntary. In the case of the press laws of Finland, it will be remembered that comparatively recently the Tsar refused to sanction a measure passed by the Diet, and the power of regulating the press thus remains in his own hands. On the other hand, when, as in the case of the military service law of 1878, the Emperor, after due deliberation, joins with the Diet in adopting a statute, it is absurd for Russian writers to pretend that his personal rights have been improperly usurped by the Finnish Diet. There are still in Finland a large number of cases, such as in England would come under the Home Office or Local Government Board, which afford legitimate scope for these administrative ordinances, the difference being that in England departmental regulations and bylaws possess binding force only insofar as they carry out the law whereas in Finland these ordinances have of themselves the full force and effect of law, although no doubt it is a recognised principle that they must not conflict with the spirit of the existing law. Laws in the strict sense of the word are of two kinds, constitutional or fundamental laws and general laws. Constitutional laws, as we have seen, can only be altered on the initiative of the emperor, and with the consent of all four estates. When it is intended to include a new act or certain sections of an act among the fundamental laws, the intention is expressed in the body of the act and in the imperial decree sanctioning and promulgating it. Reference has already been made in an earlier chapter 
to the decree in which the Emperor Alexander II proclaimed the law of the deity in 1869. But the fundamental nature of that law is also expressed in the last paragraph of the Act itself, as passed by all the estates in 1867. This law of the deity shall as a whole be valid as an irrevocable fundamental law, binding on the sovereign and the estates of Finland, until it shall have been repealed or amended by their corresponding decision. In order to guard against hasty alterations of these irrevocable fundamental laws, it is enacted that when any proposal affecting any of them is brought forward, it may, if at least two of the estates so resolve, be postponed until the next deed. In the case of general or ordinary laws, which may be carried by the agreement of any three of the estates, the initiative for their introduction, amendment or repeal may come either from the estates or from the emperor. It sometimes happens that a law is of a mixed nature, certain sections being general, whilst others are expressly declared to be fundamental. This is the case in the military service law of 1878, and the matter is still further complicated by the fact already referred to, that in certain military matters the emperor himself is entitled to act through the Russian minister of war. The church law, again, is in some respects to be regarded as a general law, but it has this peculiarity that here the initiative belongs to the church synod. It was also made a matter of express reservation in the law of 1886, granting to the estate the power of initiative that in the case of press legislation, the initiative should remain with the emperor. In all cases in which the emperor's power with regard to Finland is referred to, it is hardly necessary to explain that, save in the points already accepted in connection with foreign and military affairs, the power possessed is not that of the autocrat of Russia, but of the Grand Duke of Finland, acting through properly constituted channels, the Minister Secretary of State for Finland, and the Finnish Senate. There is also a difference in the form of signifying the imperial sanction of constitutional and general laws. A constitutional law is signed by the Emperor himself and countersigned by the Finnish Secretary of State. A general law is signed by the members of the Senate by His Majesty's own decision. It will be seen from this examination of the practical working of the Finnish constitution that, although so closely connected with Russia, Finland enjoys the essentials of a free government. Readers of Mr. Dicey's chapter on the rule of law will remember the three great canons which he lays down as tests of the supremacy of the law. To the first two of those tests, the Finnish constitution seems to answer completely. In Finland, as in England, No man is punishable nor can he be lawfully made to suffer in body or goods, except for a distinct breach of law established in the ordinary legal manner before the ordinary courts of the land. And in the second place, Every man, whatever be his rank or condition, is subject to the ordinary law of the realm, and amenable to the jurisdiction of the ordinary tribunals. There may still be some remnants of exceptional jurisdiction in Finland, in connection with the privileges of the nobility or the clergy, but these can scarcely be regarded as infringing 
the rule of law any more than can, for example, the powers of discipline exercised over its members by an inn of court or the medical council. It must be admitted, however, that when subjected to the third test, the Grand Duchy falls short. The fact that the judges of the Supreme Court are members of the executive, holding their office by a brief tenure and dependent for reappointment on the act of the sovereign constitutes an obvious weakness and explains why Mr. Dicey's words, The general principles of the Constitution are with us the result of judicial decisions determining the rights of private persons in particular cases brought before the courts. Do not apply to Finland. In the lower branches and for ordinary occasions, the rule of law is complete, but it is to be feared that if the supreme test were applied and the High Court required to try its strength against an aggression on liberty on the part of the Crown, the challenge could not be taken up. We sometimes forget that our own parliamentary constitution has been a thing of gradual growth, and that a small and intermittent body like the Finnish Diet differs in degree of development, and not in essence, from the all-powerful British Parliament. Burke's words on the House of Commons as it existed in former times apply to three out of four of the estates in Finland today. The House of Commons, he said in his Thoughts on the cause of the present discontents was supposed originally to be no part of the standing government of this country. It was considered as a control issuing immediately from the people and speedily to be resolved into the mass from whence it arose. Its lack of continuity and the absence of a responsible ministry render it impossible for the Finnish Diet to exercise such uninterrupted sovereignty as the British Parliament yet it is in principle sovereign. It should not be necessary to once more warn English readers against the blunder constantly made by the Russian writers who regard the Diet and the Sovereign as essentially distinct and possibly hostile powers. In England, King, Lords and Commons constitute the King in Parliament and legislate as such. And similarly in Finland, Grand Duke, Lords, Clergy, Burghers and Peasants constitute in combination the sovereign legislative body. It is this joint power that has, like our Parliament, the right to make and unmake any law whatever. The objection made that the Tsar is an autocrat, that the autocracy cannot limit itself, and that, therefore, his power in Finland remains absolute, although he may from time to time be pleased to confer this or that institution on his people, is quite beside the mark. It is true that the autocracy cannot limit itself. The Tsar governs in Russia in accordance with certain rules, which, for want of a better word, are called laws, and with the help of various bodies and persons, called Senate, Council, Ministers, Governors, Judges, and so forth. These are, however, laws and officials alike, all of his own creation, and may be destroyed or changed at any moment. But this autocracy never existed in Finland. The extracts already copiously made from the original pledges and documents of 1809 are conclusive on this point. If the Tsar bought an estate in England, that estate would remain subject to the law of the country, and the objection that the Tsar, being an autocrat, could not limit himself, would not prevail against an English contract. Similarly, 
when the Tsar Alexander assumed the government of Finland, he bound himself and his successors, not as Tsar, but as Grand Duke, by the laws of Finland, and these constitute no limitation of his authority as Tsar, but are conclusive as to his powers as Grand Duke. End of section 12. Section 13 of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899, by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter 12a, The February Manifesto, Part 1. Having established the fact that Finland possesses a constitution, and that that constitution is binding on the Tsar by every possible obligation, constitutional, legal, and personal, we come to another objection, which illustrates the difficulty Finland has all along found in dealing with the Russian attack. Writers known to be official, or acting under official inspiration, first denounce and ridicule the whole Finnish position. It is declared to be a conspiracy, a mystification, an attack on the sacred principle of autocracy, or even on the safety and prestige of the Russian Empire. A conspiracy that has its origin, now, in the national perversity of the Finns, now, in the intrigues of Germany, of Sweden, even of England, although, as a matter of fact, England has been one of the last of the European nations to realise the fact that there was a constitutional conflict going on in Finland. When this position is destroyed by a citation of the simple facts of history, new ground is taken up, and it is argued, although a constitution was guaranteed, the action of the Tsar in the cases of the Military Service Bill and the February Manifesto does not constitute any infringement of that constitution, while by the way of combination of the two arguments, some will have it that it is true that the Tsar conferred a constitution on Finland but circumstances being changed, he is at liberty to modify or abolish it. In the words credited to a Grand Duke, what a Tsar gave, a Tsar can take away. The second argument is the one that concerns us most at the present moment. It is the one put forward formally by the Tsar himself. It is obviously the only one that as a man of honour he could put forward. When deputations from the estates and from the Senate endeavour in vain to obtain a hearing for their remonstrances. His answer is that all the fuss is quite unnecessary, that the imperial word will be kept, that the Finnish constitution is quite safe under his guardianship. A little discussion of the events of the last few months will show that this position is as untenable as the others, and is utterly inconsistent, not only with the terms of the original compact made at Borgo, but with the whole course of government under that compact during the last ninety years. The Tsar's present advisers will hardly claim to be experts in constitutional law. General Kuropatkin, Monsieur Goremikin, or Monsieur Pobidonostsev would regard a study of the Finnish fundamental law as a waste of time. The old race of Finnish secretaries of state is extinct. A Russian official from the Ministry of the Interior sits in their seat. But surely, in a matter which preceding the Tsars, at any rate, regarded as vitally concerning their honour and their credit, there should be someone among the hordes of functionaries capable of instructing the Tsar 
as to the essential facts of his position as Grand Duke of Finland. In order of time, the military service scheme came before the February Manifesto, but it will be more convenient to take the two in their natural order, for the military bill is evidently only a particular application of the general principle laid down in the Manifesto and the statutes annexed to it. It is true that General Kuropatkin wished, as a previous war minister in the time of Alexander II had wished, to enforce the new military service scheme by direct imperial decree, a step that would have rendered unnecessary the discussion of constitutional details. But such a direct violation of the law did not commend itself. It was decided, instead of abolishing the constitution, to explain it away. And thus, the manifesto constitutes an important new departure in Russian policy. It is no longer the outpourings of the jackal press that have to be considered, but a formal manifesto under the imperial signature. When the extraordinary Diet, summoned by the Tsar to consider the military service bill, met on January the 24th, 1899, there was a perceptible menace in the words with which the new governor opened the session when he hinted that, whether the estates consented or not, the military forces of the Grand Duchy would have to be put on a new footing. Entirely ignorant of the country and its languages and institutions as General Brobrokov was, he could scarcely have imagined that the matter would be so easily disposed of, for it will be remembered the point in dispute is no new one. Alexander I had brought forward the army question in the very forefront of his propositions to the first Diet in 1809, and when, after the change in the centre of gravity of Europe in 1870-71, all the powers took to recasting their military organisation, the question naturally came up again in a fashion that must have been fairly familiar to Russian soldiers. General Milyutin, who wanted to get as many men as possible, and who naturally wished to go the shortest way to work, drew up a memorandum to Alexander II, arguing that Finland ought to be treated like any other part of the empire. Finland, he wrote, while enjoying its own local administration and special laws, should not be allowed to acquire the attributes of a separate and independent state. Its connection with the empire should be expressed above everything by unity to the supreme power, as well as unity in the conduct of diplomatic and military affairs. No part of the state can be permitted to have a separate military force. The Finns, said General Milyutin in conclusion, must perform military service equal with other populations of the empire and amalgamate with them in forming one Russian army. These are excellent principles for a Russian minister of war, nor is it wonderful that Alexander II should have written on the margin of the report, The main principles herein set forth entirely coincide with my own ideas, and I retain it for further consideration. But when the further consideration came to be given to the matter, the Tsar Liberator, who a few years before had explained the principles of constitutional monarchy on which he proposed to govern Finland, discovered that the course recommended by General Milyutin was in flat contradiction to the Finnish constitution, and so when at last a scheme was elaborated in proper form, not only did he give effect to it in the shape approved by the estates, but he joined in making several of its most important clauses an irrevocable fundamental law, which could never be altered except with the consent of all four estates. 
Later on, when further changes were being made in 1891, General Vanofsky, Minister of War to Alexander III, made a somewhat similar suggestion, which met with the same fate. All this would seem sufficiently conclusive as an admission that the Finnish army is a matter for the Finnish Diet, but the War Office officials have actually, as we shall see later, had the ineptitude to bring forward and make much of the unsuccessful attempt of General Miliutin as an argument, apparently, in favour of their being permitted to violate the law on this occasion, because they were not permitted to do so before. The War Office in St. Petersburg, and the Governor in Helsingfors, could therefore have been under no delusions as to the nature of the reception that would be given to a military service scheme that had been prepared not as the Constitution directs by the Finnish Senate, but by the Russian authorities, and that had been sent on to Helsingfors for the authorities there to make any remarks that might occur to them on its wording. Already on January 30th, a secret commission had begun its sittings under the presidency of Grand Duke Michael Nikolaevich, and as soon as General Bobrikov had made sure that things would follow their normal and legal course at Helsingfors, he hastened back to St. Petersburg to consult with the commission, of which he was appointed a member, and on which the sinister figure of Monsieur Pobidonostsev, the High Inquisitor of Russia, was suggestively prominent. Two more sittings, on February 10th and 13th, were sufficient to complete the preparation of the manifesto and the statutes. On the 14th, the Tsar's signature, post-dated, was obtained, and on the morning of the 15th, General Bobrikov was back in Helsingfors, with the weapon in his pocket, which would put an end to all the perverted ideas of the Finns about the rights of their diet. He showed it privately to one prominent senator, who had in the past been regarded as the most friendly to Russia of all the Finnish politicians. But even that chosen confidant was appalled at the illegal and revolutionary nature of the document, and implored that it might be withheld till friendly remonstrances could be made at St. Petersburg. The appeal was in vain, and the manifesto was issued on the same day. It runs as follows. We, Tsar Nicholas II, by the grace of God, Emperor and Autocrat of all the Russias, Tsar of Poland, Grand Duke of Finland, etc., 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 do hereby make known to all our faithful subjects that the Grand Duchy of Finland which since the beginning of the present century has been included in the Empire of Russia, possesses, by the gracious consent of the Emperor Alexander I, of blessed memory, and his august heirs, special institutions with regard to interior administration and legislation, which are suited to the conditions of life in that country. But, beside the local legislative matters in Finland, emanating from the peculiar conditions of society in that country, there also arise in the administration of the empire other legislative questions in regard to Finland, which on account of their intimate connection with the general interests of the empire cannot be exclusively treated and decided by the institutions of the Grand Duchy. In regard to the manner in which such questions are to be decided, the laws now in force do not contain any definite stipulations, and the lack of these has brought about serious difficulties. In order to remedy these difficulties, we, constantly bearing in mind the welfare of all our faithful subjects without respect to persons, have seen fit, in order to complete the ordinances now in force, 
and for the observance of the respective authorities in the Empire and the Grand Duchy to establish a fixed and unchangeable order for their work in elaborating and issuing laws of general interest and importance for the Empire, whilst maintaining in full force the now prevailing statutes which concern the promulgation of local laws relating exclusively to the internal affairs of Finland, we have found it necessary to reserve to ourselves the ultimate decision as to which laws come within the scope of the general legislation of the Empire. With this in view, we have, with our royal hand, established and confirmed the fundamental statutes for the preparation, revision and promulgation of laws issued for the Empire, including the Grand Duchy of Finland, which are proclaimed simultaneously herewith. In conformity with our crowned forefathers, we see a guarantee for the advancement of Finland in the most intimate union of that country with the Empire, under the protection of Russian rule, and rendered strong thereby, Finland has, during nearly a whole century, made constant and steady progress in peaceful development. And it has been a source of happiness to us to see, by the lately delivered assurances of the estate, that the feeling of devotion for us and Russia is ardent in the hearts of the Finnish people. We feel assured that a cooperation between the authorities of the Empire and the Grand Duchy of Finland in legislative matters which concern their common interests, if founded on the fixed precepts of a positive law, will tend to a still more effectual extension of the benefits and advantages of the Russian Empire. Issued at St. Petersburg this 3rd, 15th, day of February, 1899 A.D., and in the fifth year of our reign. It would have been well for Nicholas II, and for the credit of Russia, before the civilized world, if, before permitting himself to sign the above, he had studied the utterances and the solemn pledges of those crowned forefathers to whom the manifesto alludes. If he had remembered the words of Alexander I, when that sovereign, having assured himself that the constitution and the laws which in conformity with the character, the customs and the civilization of the Finnish people have through a long series of years formed the basis of their civil liberty and peace, could not without danger be limited or altered. Proceeded to confirm for all time the assurance of a separate constitution for the country under our sceptre and that of our successors. He would scarcely have authorised the appearance of the meaningless sentence about the institutions suited to the conditions of life in that country, whilst the assurance to the Diet of Borgo that Finland was a nation under the empire of its own laws hardly fits in with the claim that in the emperor resides the ultimate decision whether the nation shall have its own laws or those of a St. Petersburg official. Nicholas II is instructed to say that he sees a guarantee for the advancement of Finland in the most intimate union of that country with the empire. Alexander II, who knew the Finlanders better than any of the present generation of Russians, because he went among them 
and ascertained their feelings, had also aspirations for the prosperity of a country very dear to my heart. But he found guarantees for that prosperity in the faithful observance of the Constitution and in the fact that none of my acts has been such as to disturb the good understanding that ought to exist between the sovereign and the nation. And he was justified in his confidence, for it was under his rule that Finland began to make such extraordinary progress, whilst the disturbance caused by this one ill-advised act of Nicholas II has been the signal for the steady stream of emigration and for a general decline in prosperity. The fact that nearly a whole century of constant and steady progress in peaceful development had been the result of a strict policy of non-interference seems a poor argument for violently reversing the system that worked so well, and entering on a course of Russification whose first result has been effectually to check the progress and peaceful development of Finland. The fundamental statutes above alluded to require special study. They are signed by the Grand Duke Michael, President of the Imperial Council, and on the margin the Emperor has written, So may it be. 1. The original preparation of laws issued for the Empire, including the Grand Duchy of Finland, shall take place on each occasion with the gracious Imperial consent. In cases where the general course of administration necessitates the preparation of a new law, or the alteration or supplementing of a law already in force. 2. This mode of procedure is to be observed both with respect to the laws which are applicable throughout the whole empire, including the Grand Duchy of Finland, and with respect to laws which are applied only within the limits of the Grand Duchy, in case they touch the common interests of the empire, or are connected with the legislation of the empire. 3. Application for gracious imperial consent in regard to the execution of the aforesaid laws, sections 1 and 2, shall be made by the duly authorised and appointed Minister of the Empire and the Minister Secretary of State for the Grand Duchy of Finland, after having mutually communicated with each other. When the Governor-General of Finland, with respect to the course of the administration of the Grand Duchy, finds it necessary to supplement the laws in force in the country, in the manner fixed and established by these statutes, he has a right, in order to effect their further examination, to communicate his proposals on the subject to the proper Minister of the Empire and the Minister Secretary of State for the Grand Duchy. 4. After the gracious imperial consent has been obtained for the issuing of a law or laws for the Empire, including the Grand Duchy of Finland, the Minister of the Empire shall communicate with the Governor-General of Finland the Minister Secretary of State for the Grand Duchy of Finland and the Imperial Senate of Finland in order to get their opinion in regard to the wording of the proposed law. 5. With respect to the legislative proposals which in accordance with the Ordinance for the Internal Administration of the Grand Duchy of Finland are handed over to be treated by the Diet of Finland, it is necessary to have the opinion of the Diet in making the laws mentioned in Section 2 of these statutes. The opinion of the Diet shall be given at its nearest following ordinary session, unless there should be a gracious imperial command for convening an extraordinary session for this purpose. 6. After the opinions of the Governor-General of Finland, of the Minister-Secretary of State for the Grand Duchy of Finland, and of the Imperial Senate of Finland, and, in proper cases, 
see section 5, of the Diet of Finland have been ascertained, the Minister of the Empire hands over the legislative proposal to the Imperial Council in the form and manner ordained by the statutes for the Imperial Council. The documents on this subject must be accompanied by a copy of the opinion of the Senate and Diet. 7. This legislative proposal is examined on common principles under the cooperation of the Governor-General of Finland, the Minister-Secretary of State for the Grand Duchy of Finland, and of the Senators in the Imperial Senate of Finland, who, after gracious Imperial election, have been especially appointed for this purpose. 8. The gracious decision of the Imperial Council in regard to such legislative proposal shall be promulgated in duly ordained form and manner, both in the Empire and in the Grand Duchy of Finland. Perhaps the best commentary that can be made on this revolutionary decree, which plunged all Finland into consternation, is to explain in the fewest possible words what has hitherto been the procedure with the regard to the preparation of new laws proposed by the Emperor. The procedure prescribed by the form of government of 1772 and the law of the Diet of 1869, and followed by the successive Tsars. The Emperor, having elaborated the scheme of the bill in consultation with the Minister Secretary of State for Finland, and, until the committee was abolished, the Committee for Finland, forwarded it through the Finnish Chancery in St. Petersburg to the Senate in Helsingfors. The Senate then examined the bill with the assistance of the Procurator General as to the legal points, and the measure thus finally elaborated was then laid before the Estates which in their turn might approve, modify, or reject. The bill, if finally approved, according to its character by three or by all four of the estates, went back to the emperor through the proper channels, and if accepted, was signed and promulgated. If the Tsar disapproved of it as it came back to him, there was an end of it, until or unless it was again brought forward at another subsequent deed. Neither the Tsar nor any other authority could alter it between the time it received the signatures of the Talmud and its promulgation as law. Now observe how at every essential step this legal procedure is suspended and a series of illegalities substituted. It must be recollected throughout that the all-important post occupied for over sixty years in succession by Rebinder and by Armfeld is now filled by a Russian official, Monsieur de Plevre, the Finnish Secretary of State is the man who has the ear of the Emperor, who has to guide him as to the facts and law of Finnish affairs, so long as the occupant of the office was a Finlander of statesmanlike tact and strength. It was impossible for a Tsar to go far wrong. The fact that even the first Nicholas, in spite of his autocratic strength, drew back when it was pointed out to him that he had inadvertently trespassed on the constitutional rights of Finland, proves this. What chance has the case of Finland of being fairly and forcibly stated when the Secretary for Finland is an ex-employee of the Ministry of the Interior? It is a serious matter for the Grand Duchy that in the future interpretation of the Manifesto and the Statutes, which teem with ambiguities, there will at the critical moment be no one near the Tsar, himself entirely uninstructed as to Finland, to see that the balance is held even between the nation of two millions and a half and the nation of a hundred millions. There is, in the first place, introduced a novel classification of laws unknown to the first or second Alexander, 
the men who moulded the relations of Finland to the Empire. We have measures applicable to the Empire, including the Grand Duchy of Finland, measures applying to Finland but affecting in some way the interests of the Empire, and finally, as a miserable remnant, if there be any remnant, measures affecting Finland alone. As the Tsar has found it necessary to reserve to himself the ultimate decision as to which laws come within the scope of the general legislation of the Empire, and as he will in the future have no Finnish secretary competent or desirous to instruct him in the interests of Finland, it seems to follow that few indeed will be the measures proposed in which some trace of imperial interest may not be discovered. Coinage, postage, railways, land tenure, to name only a few recent cases, have all been treated as of imperial interest. The right of Finlanders to be governed by their own laws, and to make those laws, has passed at a stroke of the pen from the region of guaranteed constitutional right to that of imperial favour. Next, when the imperial factor has been found latent in any proposal referring to Finland, all the forms so carefully laid down in the laws of 1772 and 1869 become mere waste paper, and the new, fixed and unchangeable order of February 15, 1899 comes into force. The duly authorised and appointed Minister of the Empire consults with the Minister Secretary of State for the Grand Duchy of Finland, and these two, who under present arrangements are practically one, having agreed, the gracious imperial consent to the issuing of the law, thus enacted without reference to any qualified Finnish citizen or authority, is obtained. After the gracious imperial consent, the opinion of the Senate is to be taken as to the wording of the law. In certain proper cases, the Tsar deciding as to the propriety, the Diet of Finland is also to have an opportunity of offering its opinion. Finally, appearances having, to this extent, been observed, the measure comes back to the real legislators, the Imperial Council, and is by them considered and promulgated in the duly ordained form and manner. Legislation for a country which had been guaranteed the position of a free nation under the Empire of its own laws is to be prepared by Russian officials, sent on to the Finnish authorities for their opinion, and sent back to the Russian officials for final revision and promulgation. End of section 13. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.